welcome to Define the Relationship podcast, a podcast where we explore the relationship we have with the Bible and ourselves. I'm one of your hosts, Darlene Enstick. And I'm the other host, Ted Enstick. And as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just defined the relationship. everyone. Welcome to Define the Relationship podcast. Hi, Ted. Hi, Darlene. <laughs> this is podcast number 27. Yes. And uh, 26 was exploring um, salvation and how um, we just come off of Easter and um, we want to take another go at the theme of reconstructing salvation because we, we didn't quite feel like we've finished it. No, I think most of these topics, um, even though we're talking about our perspectives and some of our thinking on it over 45, 50 minutes, we only scratched the surface on these, um, on these themes. And, uh, as we've been talking in our regular life since, just it felt like there's some more things that we need to talk about salvation. So, and we intentionally last time didn't get into, um, you know, all the theories around salvation, what, and I think we're going to do a little bit of that today, but you know, throughout history, there has been a lot of conversation and debate around how God saves and how, um, how the cross plays into it and what, what we should take from it and what we shouldn't take from it. And, um, I think in a way our first conversation was more about on a, for people that grew up in the church, what are the ways in which we, um, kind of saw the need to be saved and deconstructing, um, maybe some of the negative messages about being in and out or, um, what made, what made somebody good enough or at what point is someone saved and, and what does that mean for eternal life and all of those things. Um, but it was more, I would say almost on the level of, you know, just kind of getting into, the messages we received, not, not from a theological perspective, but just, just what kind of, what, what was our impression growing up of, um, what it meant to be saved and what it meant for somebody not to be saved. Um, and today I think, um, you're going to give us a little bit of a, um, like a super quick crash course, right? On yes, some old- some of the different some of the different theories of atonement, which is the word that is used for um, theories of how one is saved. And so I don't know. Maybe you want to even start with talking about what atonement is. And yeah, I don't know. Do you want to? Is that a good place to start, or you yeah, want to well, start somewhere else? I mean, yeah, atonement might be a good place to start. I. I came across um, a quote. Um, um, I was I was using um, our friend Brad Jerzak's book, "A More Christ Like God: A More Beautiful Gospel," as a way of kind of 
refreshing my understanding of different ways that um, people in the last 2,000 years in the Christian tradition, how they've understood salvation. And a um, big part of Brad's book is is um, is trying to help us understand who God is in a more full way. And um, maybe what we've been deconstructing in our deconstruction is angry, punitive understandings of God and trying to restore, find a more beautiful vision of who God is. And how does God save us? How does this beautiful vision of God save us when we um, we sort of have in a perspective? So I think um, the line that I read that I thought it's maybe a good place to start is, <clears throat> and it connects to this uh, question about, well, you know, am I good enough? Mm-hmm. Am I just good enough? Can I just be a good person or whatever? And, and Brad, uh, I'm just paraphrasing Brad here, but um, he says that, at the center of what it means to be a Christian is a belief that we cannot save ourselves. And I think that's true. Like I think that to be a follower of Jesus is to recognize that we can't get to where we want to go without help mm-hmm. and help that comes from beyond ourselves and not just the help of a friend or help of a, of a partner that, but we need help from something that's bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Um, we talked, we touched on that a little bit, I think, um, either in the podcast or when I taught on Easter Sunday about, um, I feel like that's really one of the biggest illusions that we have, that we can, we can do it on our own, that right. we can kind of, you know, that there's some kind of autonomous uh, goodness being inside myself and that, that, that should be able to be enough. Right. Yeah. And so like, I think that's an important thing to, to start with that. Um, this doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that we're bad on our own, but it's a recognition that to be who we are meant to be, that like our full humanity to come out of us, we need the strength and the the sustaining power of something beyond ourselves. And this is kind of, I guess, um, you know, I mean, some people come to the perspective that we don't need God, that God doesn't exist, and there's no reason for there to be something beyond ourselves. We just need to rightly understand ourselves. But this is a fundamental aspect of being a follower of Jesus is the recognition that we need somebody beyond ourselves. And Jesus is the center of that, that belief. So, um, so I think, I think, I I think we need to start there, like, um, to affirm that. And if you can't affirm that, then, I mean, maybe the rest of this conversation doesn't really apply, but I think that's something that we want to affirm that, um, that we need something beyond ourselves. And would you also say that that includes within ourselves that that when um, that when we're operating in a heart or spirit, let's say of goodness, that there's the kingdom of God is operating within that this the the divine image that we are created in that is it's both within us and beyond us. Yeah, like, I don't think that, that? yeah, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Like I yeah. think that 
when you see something good operating in our world, in another person, even if they're not acknowledging that it's coming from beyond them, that is the beyond being embodied in that person. So like, this is a, this is a real, like, I don't think we need to kind of get into binaries of like, it's either this or that. I just think, um, it, we need to recognize that we can, we can't do it all on our own. So Ted, why don't you start us off by just giving us a simple working definition of what, what are we talking about when we're talking about atonement? Okay. So atonement is not regular person language in talking about faith. It's not something that we're used to talking about. And so it may feel like a very inaccessible term. My simple understanding of what conversations about atonement are is about what is the mechanism or the process that happened in Jesus, his birth, Jesus's life, Jesus's death, Jesus's resurrection, Jesus is continuing to exist now. What is the way that Jesus saves us? And atonement is a way of understanding that process. And I, people have kind of broken the word up as a way of helping us to understand what that means. So it's basically at one mint. And so I would, would say it simply that atonement is the way that we are brought into our fullness or our wholeness as humans, brought into the way we're meant to be. And um, I believe that there's been a predominant understanding of atonement that kind of shapes the way we think of faith. And it's probably the one that we have needed the most to think about when we think about deconstruction and reconstruction. And so I think I, I would start with the substitutionary atonement theory. Now, I want to say that these are theories. We call them theories because they are people slash theologians in history's best way of understanding how atonement happens. And I think it's important to say that they're theories. Like, um, I don't know what it is about humans, but we, we like overarching theories to understand things like how did the world come into being we want to have a theory about how how the world became what it is so you have a creation theory or you have an evolution theory or something in between we want to we want to simplify it and i think it's important to say that this isn't always a helpful thing for us because grand theories don't always explain everything and they have problems with them and they emphasize certain things and they underemphasize other things and so I think by, by looking at these theories, we're not saying, well, okay, what's the right theory? It's more like, well, what do these theories emphasize and what are their problems? And maybe are there other ways of thinking about this? My guess, though, around this is that a lot of people listening would have no idea that there were multiple theories, that a lot of people kind of grew up with uh, what is called, you know, the substitutionary atonement theory, but didn't know it by that name. Right. And that theory, which you're going to explain in a minute, is just like, that's just the right, that's the theory. That's just the way it is. That's, that's how Jesus saves us, that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The right way. Yeah. So I think let's talk about substitutionary atonement. And, um, um, 
And I think that'll be our starting point. And I want to talk a bit about some of the problems with it. And then it'll allow us to talk about some other ways of thinking about it. And if you're still with us in <laughs> 20 or 30 minutes, then way to go. And uh, hopefully this isn't something that feels too heady. But I think that... Why is it important? Why why should anyone keep listening? Well, like I think it's important because we we want to have a, um, I'll use the word, a fulsome or a holistic understanding of how Jesus saves us that doesn't fixate on one aspect of who Jesus is, but that actually leads us into a much more broad understanding of faith in life. That's what I think is at stake here. And so the substitutionary atonement model, like um, this isn't a very, this is actually a more recent understanding of of uh, how Jesus saves us but it's become the predominant one and um, I want to start with we've sometimes referred to the four spiritual laws um, now many of you might not be aware of that but this is kind of the this was the standard four-step process that people were brought into faith in the evangelical fundamentalist community and so it might be very familiar to us and it's got the four spiritual laws are this God loves us and created us for relationship. That's the first law. The second law is we screwed up. We're sinful. We are separated from God by our sin. And added to that is God is holy and can't really deal with our sin. They don't mix. And um, so this is our problem. We're sinful and we're separated from God. And we're separated because of our screwed upness. And the third law is, is that God sent Jesus into the world to be a sacrifice that would bridge that gap. That Jesus would be human like us, but would be sinless, unlike us. And through the cross, the gap would be bridged. We would no longer be separated. And the fourth thing is that we need to accept that. We need to receive that. Some people might refer to that as we need to pray the sinner's prayer which is basically the sinner's prayer is just a, a, a summary of these four spiritual laws. And at the end, we say we accept Jesus and we are saved. Now, this, this understanding of how we're saved came from um, good old Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm was, uh, you know, there's a few theologians in history that are known by one name. It's kind of like we know Beyonce and uh, other one word people like Prince in Madonna. pop culture, Madonna. Um, so here's one of our one word theologians, Anselm. And uh, his theory was called the, the satisfaction theory of atonement. And it simply meant that um, however this happened, Jesus substituted for us. Jesus did something for us to satisfy the problem of our sin. And so that's, you know, it's a pretty simple understanding. And and we can see how um, theologians got this because there's many scriptural references to how, you know, Jesus came and took our place mm -hmm. and somehow reconciled us to God by doing that. And so there's there's nothing kind of fundamentally wrong with this approach this is this is something that's born out in how we understand scripture and um 
this kind of got a bit of a, a remix or a, a re-emphasis during the Reformation from our uh, our friend uh, John Kelvin, who is one of the the reformers. Um, for us who come from Mennonite background, uh, John Kelvin's a bit of a sore topic because um, Kelvin used to uh, refer to us as the detestable Anabaptists and was a part of kind of the persecution of early Anabaptists. And so um, we might have a hard time talking about Kelvin because he was somebody that actually did damage and, and killed people who came from our tradition. But um, he kind of expanded this understanding of substitution atonement or satisfaction atonement and he came up with something called PSA not a public service announcement but penal substitutionary atonement and this really focused on the fact that not only was there a gap between us and God um, somebody had to pay for our inequities our misdeeds, our sin. And so it puts God into the position of a wrathful judge who needs to have his needs satisfied, and Jesus comes and is punished by God for us. So Jesus doesn't only just take a place and become a bridge for us. Jesus is actually has to be um, put on the stand as... A perpetrator and God punishes Jesus on behalf of us. So this is the this is kind of the main way that we've understood salvation. I think in many of the communities that we've grown up, that um, we sang on Easter Sunday in Christ alone. It's a very um, popular song that gets sung in churches, and there's a line in in Christ alone that actually in our church we changed that line. But um, it's, the line is, the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. And um, we say something a little bit different. We say, sorry, Stuart Townend, who wrote the song, but um, we don't think that's good theology. We believe that um, the love of God was satisfied mm-hmm. in Jesus. And um, so, yeah, so that's the first one. I mean, the thing that... This- Sorry, I was just yeah. going to say, and this is, I mean, the wrath of God being satisfied is, is, um, what has contributed to like a very predominant image of God as angry, as like the fury of God, like God is so angry with us that he just pours out that anger into an innocent the innocent son. Right. Right. So, so we'll, so because of this kind of perspective, you'll get, I'd say God is love, but theology. Mm -hmm. So we read in first John about the love of God and how God is love and love is God and all this beautiful stuff that sounds so amazing. And then at the same time, we'll say, yeah, but God also is wrathful and God needs to, punish and if god's wrath is not satisfied then we still have a problem now um not to get into all those aspects of substitutionary atonement but you know one of the real problems with this take is that it it predominantly focuses on the death of jesus like 
Um, the only reason that we celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas is because Jesus needs to die for our sins. And so we are happy at Christmas because Jesus was born so that he could die. That's kind of the, the impact. And we say like, oh, Jesus had a really great life. He lived 30, 30 some odd years. And, um, you know, he, he, he called disciples and he led them around for three and a half years. And they learned stuff about how God works and how, who God is. And he told stories and he taught and all this kind of stuff. But really, that was all just sort of like prelude to him dying. Mm-hmm. He was born to die. He lived so he could die because all that matters is, is that he goes to the cross to satisfy God's wrath. And, um, and you should give your life to him because you're a worm and he did this amazing thing for you. Yeah. He, he took your place. You deserve, you deserve punishment. You still deserve punishment, but he took your place. Um, there's this there's this meme of Jesus knocking at the door based on uh, on that parable that Jesus told about ask seek knock and I, and the door will be opened unto you and it's like Jesus knocking and saying open the door well why because if you don't open the door then you're going to be punished but if you open the door then you won't be punished you know it's kind of like this sort of uh, open the door <laughs> like um, I'm not saying this this no. right, but it's kind of like, you know, well, what are you going to do to me if I don't open the door? Well, I'm going to punish you. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like not the kind of door you want to open up. Um, so there's a lot of focus on punishment and Jesus taking on punishment. Now, I don't want, want to get into all of the problems with that, but I think um, it's a bit of a, it gives us a bit of a distorted view of who God is and how Jesus saves. I would love for you to just kind of like move to the other theories and then we can kind of talk about okay. it all. Okay. Like, so, so like I said, this was a, a theory that Anselm was lived around 1033 to, to 1109. So middle ages and John Calvin was in the 16th century. So this is in the last thousands of year, last thousand years that these kind of things. Now we know Jesus died 2000 years ago. So, um, were there other ways that people thought of how Jesus saved us? And so at the same time as, as Anselm was, um, <clears throat> was a fellow named Abelard, another one named person, and you could say he had a very different um, perspective or a different emphasis on how Jesus saved us. And um, his theory was called the moral influence theory. But I would say it's kind of like um, if if this the satisfaction theory is that Jesus saves us by taking our place, um, in this case, Jesus saves us by the life that he models for us. Or he saves us by leadership, you know? So, um, so Jesus died beca- because he was demonstrating God's love. You know, he came and he lived a certain life, and that life actually led to his death, forgiving people's sins, healing people, um, all these things, they angered the authorities of the time and it led to his death. But the, but the thing that we want to emphasize is not his death, but that the life that he was modeling and he was modeling a life that would change how we think about God and that we could actually live that life. Now, interestingly enough, Abelard, while he was living, got excommunicated for this view 
But later on, after he died, the church actually rescinded his excommunication. Thanks. A little bit late, but um, he was brought back into the fold. And so he, his, his view was not considered something that was against the teachings of the church, but that it was actually considered part of it. Um, and so, I mean, it's basically where satisfaction emphasizes the death of Jesus. This is kind of says that, well, actually, the life of Jesus is super important. What he taught, what he showed, what he did. Um, this was a model for us. And, and it led to death. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it led to death. So um, I think it's a pretty simple understanding. Now, if you um, if you look at the last you know five hundred years of the church, and you think about how we think about things getting split between kind of more the liberal approach to life and the more conservative approach to life, Anselm's and then Calvin's substitutionary atonement approach kind of became the sort of the central conservative Protestant understanding of faith. And if you think about the more liberal side of the of Protestants, um, they probably or more the Abelardian or the the more you were saved by the leadership and the life of Jesus became sort of on the on the left side or the liberal side. So um, now, so those are two two ways of thinking about it. Now you might think like, oh, I kind of like that one better than the other one, or vice versa. But uh, you know, a thousand years before Abelard and Anselm came along there was a church and they had understandings of how Jesus saved that were different than these two approaches. And so let's talk about them. Now um, I'm going to kind of, this is maybe not fair to lump them all together, but I'm going to lump three, three ways of understanding that come um, that come out of the very early church. And what we're talking about here is like right after Jesus died and we have, you know, the letters of Paul and Peter and those early, the early church of Acts that, that came out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then, um, you know, the hundred to 300 years after that, before um, Constantine, the Roman emperor made Christianity, the faith of the Roman empire. So this is, kind of when the church was still being persecuted by Rome and others. And um, how did they see it? So the ransom theory comes from, uh, from the theologian Origen, who was from 182 to 254. So I guess that's like second and third century. And uh, his view was that we were being held ransom by the devil. Ever since Adam and Eve made that mistake and they ate from the knowledge of, of the tree of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sorry. Um, Satan had basically held humanity by ransom. And so Jesus um, was God's payment to Satan to release us from ransom. So we know these ransom stories where somebody gets taken hostage and then somebody needs to pay a ransom. And uh, the, the, sort of like the um, the twist on this understanding of the ransom theory is that in paying Jesus as the payment to Satan, um, God set a trap for Satan and actually kind of overturned things and defeated death. And um, we're saved in that way. So that was the ransom theory. Again, 
you will see this language in the Bible um, talking about Jesus being a ransom or in some cases saying that like you were bought with a price. You were purchased with a price. And so it's like this perspective that God valued us so much that God um, paid the ultimate price to release us from the bondage of Satan. So we call that the ransom theory. That was that was a very early church understanding of what had happened in Jesus. Um, a second one is called the recapitulation theory, which recapitulation, that means summing everything up together. And uh, the, the main um, thinker that was connected to that is Irenaeus, who uh, I don't have his dates here, but also in the second or third century. And uh, Jesus saved us by becoming, coming to be, live in solitary, solidarity with humankind. So this is like coming and being with us. Again, sounds very familiar, uh, scriptural understanding of God with us. And um, Jesus becomes what we are so that we, he might bring us to what Jesus was. So in this case, Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus comes and lives with us as humans to bring us into relationship with God and to become like God. Um, God became human so that humans might become God. Some of you might be saying, well, that sounds really new agey. New Age um, theory that we are all gods and uh, we don't need God because we are God. But actually, this was um, this was a classic understanding of what Jesus was doing, and that it was called the deification that humans could become like God through Jesus. Distinguished from pantheism, though. Yeah, not everything is God, but yeah. but human beings were created in the image of God and could become like God through this human God person, Jesus. Um, this is a concept that's quite central, I believe, to Orthodox theology, um, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, some of these other Orthodox communities. It's called theosis. And it's the process of becoming like God. And, um, you know, we, we use this language mm -hmm. even in our church, right, to say that we want to be Christ-like. We want to become like Christ. And uh, sanctification, the perfection of Christ, these are theological understandings that we have. And uh, this is not some New Age thing from the 60s, mm -hmm. but actually came out of the early church's understanding of Jesus. And they were very much more close to the life of Jesus than we are today. So that was the second one. And then the third one um, coming from the early church um, was popularized or became understood by a Swedish theologian, Gustav Allen, in 1931. And so he he's obviously from the 20th century, but he was reinterpreting how the early church saw the saving of Jesus. And um, it included the ransom theory and included the recapitulation theory, but he uh, described it as the Christus Victor model of atonement, which is basically Christ the victor or the victory of Christ. And um, it was basically the understanding that Christ at the cross and in the resurrection defeated the evil powers that hold humanity down. And so now you probably, if you want to think of an image, I was thinking this is kind of the imagery of Lord of the Rings or the line in the Witch of the Wardrobe where there's these these uh, 
um, these images and these dynamics of good and evil in battle and uh, Jesus um, being the one who overcomes this battle um, at the cross. So um, this is kind of the classical view of atonement. And that takes us all the way back, like I say, to the first, second, third centuries, you know, a long time ago. So these are these are five or three or however you want to describe them ways of thinking about how Jesus saves us. And they, um, if you take them all together, they represent different emphasis that I think can help us think about this. Not just, well, Jesus died for our sins in our place. God was really mad and Jesus took the anger on himself for us. You know, so much bigger than that. That's a lot. That's a lot. Are you still with us? <laughs> you did a good job of just kind of quickly summarizing all of those. And, th- and this is very simplistic. Like I, you know. Of course. People would. People have written volumes. Yeah. On... They could poke holes in what I'm saying. But those, uh, that's kind of the gist of it. And so what, uh, what's Ted's theory of atonement? <laughs> I think I don't have an I don't have a theory. Like um um I uh when I was quite young in my 20 early 20s and I I took a course on atonement um when I was doing my bachelor of theology and we used a book um by a Mennonite theologian called John Driver and he talked about motifs or themes or metaphors of salvation that we have in the scriptures. And, um, I think he maybe talked about 21 different ones and, you know, we, we wouldn't want to get into all of them, but I think of like, um, Jesus told a lot of parables and stories that I think gave us metaphors for how we are being saved. And so he would, I mean, one of the first ones I think about is, um, salvation is about being found lost and found you know we um often we have kind of a negative impression of the word lost because it is used sort of as a marker on people who we say are separated they're out they're not in they're the lost when jesus came for the lost but um you know the image of uh he says you know god is like uh, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one gets lost and he abandons the 99 that are found to find that lost sheep because he values every sheep that he owns, every sheep that's connected to him. And so that's a beautiful vision about what salvation is, that God goes after everyone. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. And, you know, so what does it mean to be lost? Well, maybe a lost person is somebody who feels lost, doesn't understand where they fit in this world. And so salvation is finding yourself in God. Um, you know, so that's that's one image. Um, there's, you know, another image is of God as being a great physician and uh, a doctor who diagnoses our condition and sees that we need healing in our in our metaphorical body and God comes to heal us. And so God is like a doctor who 
gives us the right cure or the right medicine or you know these are these are beautiful images actually like if mm-hmm. you're if you're sick and you find the right medicine that is a real salvation that you experience when when a medicine can actually help you live the life that you want to live you know so um i think if if we look at the scriptures there's all of these different kind of metaphors and images that help us to understand who God is and to say like, well, it just comes down to we're messed up and God needed to send Jesus to save us because we are really messed up and God is really angry at us, but Jesus is going to take the anger. That is such a, that's such a reductionist view of who God is, mm-hmm. you know, and it does damage because then suddenly it's like, well, well, let's have leaders in the church that are angry and are, are you know are um vindictive and stuff like that i mean you can see how church structures actually who believe this as being the fundamental way we are saved how it affects how people get treated it has really um perpetuated a great deal of oppression uh throughout history and i think that we have come to um a place where, you know, these theories that you very quickly outlined represent different people's understanding throughout history. And, and maybe why that's important is that um, there's nuance. There's, there's an understanding that we don't understand so much and that we have different ways of coming to we're trying to understand who God is, but I think not only who God is, but why Jesus had to die and how that death um, is important to my life, like which seems like a deep disconnect for a lot of people. You know, some parents in our in our community would say, like, is it important for my kids, like? to know that Jesus died for them. And there's an association that because you're so bad, Jesus died for you. And they don't want to, they don't want to communicate that. And so it feels like, um, we have this pot of all these different theories and there's scriptural basis for all of them. There's, you know, um, verses you can point to for all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the one that we've, maybe it's too strong of a, no, it's not too strong of a word. The penal substitutionary atonement theory is one that we reject. Is that too strong? I don't think it's too strong. I think that, um, I think it's, that theory is doing a lot of heavy lifting to make God into an angry despot that needs to have his needs satisfied and um it gives it gives um validity to violence mm-hmm. um Redempt, that, redemptive, redemptive violence that yeah. there's no other way that god could save us but to kill Jesus right. to kill his own son. And right. I think um, 
that's something that in our tradition, always actually in our Anabaptist tradition, we, I don't think have ever claimed as, as, uh, truth. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some, I mean, to me, there's some illogic in that approach too, because, um, you know, not to get into finer parts of kind of philosophy and theology about who God is, but I mean, it just, just at an intuitive level, it makes no sense for a God who's all powerful, all knowledge has all knowledge and, you know, all the, all, all the alls, all loving to create people in God's image for a reason. And then to basically create them knowing that they're going to mess up and then that the way to to deal with that is somebody has to like kind of um has to satisfy your need your need for things to be holy and right and true it just feels like a little bit like um like is this a god worth worshiping is this a god that that one would want to kind of be aligned with i mean it's um you know like David Bentley Hart in his book that all shall be saved that came out recently talking about salvation and is salvation universal. Like does when Jesus died for our sins, even like substitutionary atonement, is that for everyone or just for the people who said, yeah, I believe that, or I've said the sinner's prayer or whatever, like, is it for everyone? And, and he makes a claim. He says that like, if, if, if it's not true that all are saved by God, then I, I don't really want, want anything to do with God. And I think, that most people at an intuitive level think that that doesn't make any sense. And this is when people become atheists, this is the God that they don't want to believe in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I say, yeah, I, I'm not an atheist, but I don't want to believe in that God either. I want to believe in a God who created humanity for a reason and loves, loves humanity and God is love. And what is, how does that play itself out? How does salvation come out of that? And it just seems that, um, you know, some people say, well, God is God. God can do whatever God wants. And and if God does something, even if it's illogical, it's still God doing it. So it, we have to accept it. And I say, well, I don't really buy that. I don't, I don't think that, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like salvation. <laughs> it doesn't sound like good news. Like, like good news should sound like good news. So can you say a little bit about um, cruciform love? Because that is one way of talking about the significance of the cross in a way that, in a way that um, restores and redeems um, and is a, is a new kind of reconstruction, I think, of atonement where um wrath has a has a different impact did do you feel like you can speak to that a little bit i don't know if i'm prepared to speak to that really very well but i think that i'll say this i mean just um like the cross is not a religious symbol, if you know what I mean. Like a cross, the significance of the cross is not that 
people wear crosses and we put crosses in our churches and stuff like that. And that's sort of the, the central symbol of the salvation of Jesus. I mean, the cross was a tool of the Roman Empire to execute people who were seen as being, um, they were, they had committed treason against the empire. Okay. So well, I think just, the, just to and I'll push back a little bit, uh, I think, I think crucifixion is, is not a, a religious symbol, but I think the cross is. Well, the cross has become a religious symbol because of the crucifixion. But, I mean, the cross was the equivalent of the electric chair or the firing squad or whatever. If you want to look in history, the ways that people who were deemed to be executed, they were tools. And so the cross was just the tool of Roman crucifixion, which was the execution of people who were deemed to be enemies of the state. But love in the shape of a cross is um, is what we what we have. This is it's not a, the crucifixion. It can be the cross is like a torture tool, um, but but God kind of changes that and reverses that to be a to be a symbol of love. Yes. I mean, like, I think what I was trying to say about crucifixion and the cross is that Jesus was born and lived on this earth, and he ended up on a Roman execution tool. And so, to me, what's what's significant about that is that he lived the kind of life that ended in being executed by the state and not just the state by actually the religious authorities because the religious authorities handed Jesus over to the state to be executed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, cruciform, like you're, you're saying how the cross is a symbol of God's love. And, um, yeah, I got, I mean, you, you asked the question cause you wanted me to go somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where you wanted me to go with it. And, um, what question did I ask you? <laughs> well, you, you asked me, you wanted me to talk about cruci- the cruciform. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and, um, but, this, and maybe I'll just say this, um, in, in Brad's book, actually a more Christ-like God, he talks about like, we can think of crucifixion as what we did to Jesus, um, and torturing and murdering of God's sin and the cross as what Jesus did for us. That Jesus offered his life in self-giving love and radical forgiveness. Um, so he's distinguishing between those, those two things. And the, and the reason why I brought it up in terms of you talking about the cruciform is what, uh, I just, I don't know. I wanted to ask, I guess, about what it, it, if ultimately we want to have a conversation about why the cross matters and how we should view the cross, then this idea of a cruciform God 
that Brad explores in this book is a way of seeing the cross as a self-giving, a voluntary, a self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And that kind of love expressed to us through the through this image of the cross is is something that rescues and heals and brings together it's not something that kills and punishes and demands it's and that's a god worth um joining and loving what's a way of envisioning this what's a way of viewing this that isn't about okay now this is the right way and I'm going to give it to you straight now um but how yeah what 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 is a way of of viewing what God is doing through the cross is in a way that is is uh, reconstructed if we're trying to deconstruct all these other things that have have us kind of be complicit in some kind of ret- retributive God, angry God. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, I don't think I don't think theories are are really the way to go, and so. So I'll answer your question by saying I'm not going to give you an answer about what I think the theory is, the best theory. I think that, I think that there's 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 pieces of these theories that there's truth in them, but they're a part of a larger truth that needs to be to thought out. And so I think about um, when we celebrate Christmas, I, I would just put it in kind of like the 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 life of how we get to know Jesus, right? We get to know Jesus because Jesus was born. And so at Christmas, we celebrate that we are saved by God becoming one of us. God is with us. How does God save us? By being with us. Well, let's, like, we can't get into all the ways, but there's something about solidarity that saves us. Yeah. There's something about withness that saves us. There's something about, <clears throat> yeah, being with us that is a sense of salvation and i think we all could experience we have experiences of where witness has been saving to us as human beings like when when we're grieving someone's death and people come and are with us in that grief that does something for us as human beings and so god is doing that Mm -hmm. god is suffering yeah with us yeah and And then we can look at jesus's life and and we see how jesus operates and we can see how god god saves us through jesus's life jesus heals the sick jesus frees the captive um and so we say that well salvation is freedom salvation is healing um i'm just touching on a few things but those are some big things um jesus saves by helping people who are blind to see physically see see in a new way right like um jesus saves us when we repent repentance means seeing things in a new way turning turning around and you know so so you to me i feel like we have to look at the whole of jesus birth 
life, death, resurrection. And then I, and I mean, there's scripture, there's like, there's the talk about, well, Jesus is God and Jesus was there in the beginning. And so we're saved by creation, by being created. We're saved by um, Colossians 1, where it talks about Jesus was there in the beginning and Jesus is holding everything together. And so we're saved because Jesus is connecting things. Um, so it, to me, it feels like there's just like anthems, uh, sorry, not anthems, um, volumes of material that shows us different aspects of what it means to be saved. And so it's kind of like the facets of a diamond, you know, there are just so many facets to a diamond and, um, it, yeah. you know, so I, I, so I think the theories are, are helpful to some extent, but they, they're, they're also super limiting, especially if we, want to hang our head on one or the other like and maybe that's the most freeing thing to realize that out of all the theories like that there's been so many ways that people have imagined and thought about and argued about and so if you think well I have to believe this in order to be a Christian maybe it's just good news to know that there's no, like that is not, there's no kind of across the board agreement that this is, this is the way it must be. And it never was that way. Like that's, that's something that's been reinforced to me over and over again in my studies is how, well, wow, these questions, like people were talking about this you know, in the second and third and sixth and seventh centuries about, you know, uh, about whether all will be saved. Mm -hmm. This is not like, oh, Christianity today, it's just getting watered down. It's like, no, they've, they've been wrestling with this in very real and honest ways for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. And we must continue to do the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, coming back to where we started in this podcast, like I think that if we can, if we can um, assent to the reality that we don't believe we can save ourselves mm. and then enter into a conversation about how we are saved by something that's beyond ourselves, um, that gets us into a conversation and we can look at some some different aspects of how God was saving us, how God was reconciling the world to God's self and thinking about how, I mean, like the one thing that we never even talked about, but I think it's, it's hinted in some of this is that, you know, we often think about salvation individualistically, Mm -hmm. personally. And what about the salvation of creation? What about the salvation of systems of oppression in our world, the the sin of structures? Mm-hmm. You know, we today is the day after the um, the Jeffrey Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, where um, a police officer killed George Floyd, and he was convicted of of murder, and. Um, um, yeah, that was an individual who did something to another individual and was held accountable for it by the by the courts. But we all know that there is a whole system of racism and 
of oppression and power in our communities that is represented by that and how does jesus save those systems you know and and there's room for that like um in the christus victor model there's a sense that the powers um are are uh, actually jesus jesus is victorious over the powers that oppress and um that to me that's a huge conversation like how can our christian faith actually be a part of um, freeing people from structures, sexism, racism, poverty. These are, these are structures that, that have power over people and they need to be saved from them. And, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with just like Jesus is my personal savior. Yeah. So much bigger than that. We, we get the, we get beautiful pictures of, um, the way Jesus uh, reveals power like to us in ways that we need to be saved from, right? Mm-hmm. How our, our power structures work personally and globally and like systemically. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Well, I think... You've given us a lot to chew on and uh, maybe it'll spur on some some more conversations. This might have felt a bit more like, okay, going through theories and stuff, but I think it's like in a more academic way, but it really um, provides, I think, um, ways that we can engage uh, a very big vision for salvation that brings wholeness together brings in a in a collective cosmic way that also includes the very personal way Mm -hmm. so thanks for leading us through that